You better believe it. It's Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 575, where Derek Reimer joins me to give a quick update on Savvy Cal and what he's been up to lately. He's actually thinking through a hiring decision. And then we dive into listener questions. And we talk about shipping code as a bootstrapper versus a large team, talk about pivoting and a zoom-in pivot, talk about what that means, and we answer more listener questions. Hope you stick around and join us. Before we dive in, MicroConf Remote 3.0 is happening November 30th, December 1st, and 2nd. This is our third MicroConf Remote, which is a virtual event. It's the no-code guide for B2B SaaS founders. We're going to take a look at the ever-evolving world of no-code, its implication for SaaS founders, and the best ways you can incorporate no-code across your stack from marketing to sales to SEO automation and more. And once again, we will be using a really cool community platform that simulates the hallway track. So it's not just people talking at you. We have usually 20-minute conversations or talks followed by 10 minutes of Q&A. And then we roll into hallway track time and you can walk around in a virtual world and meet other folks to, to simulate that. So it's not a replacement for an in-person event, but we found a lot of folks who attended the remote events were folks who had never attended a microconf before because the, the stakes are so much lower here. The tickets are really inexpensive. It's a few hours of your time over a couple of days. And so it's a great way to dip your toe in the water if you have enjoyed the previous remotes or if you've never been to a microconf. So head to microconfremote.com if you want to get notified when tickets go on sale. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Derek Reimer, where I get an update on Savvy Cal, and then we dive into listener questions. So Derek, last episode you were on was 530, this episode 575. It's been 10 months. You were back in January of 2021, and here we are in October. No, we're in November. <laughs> I'm, November I'm missing already. it. Yeah. So you want to update folks on Savvy Cal and what's been happening. I mean, I know that folks probably heard about your product launch back in January, and you you actually did a talk about that at MicroConf Remote. But you've been public about an MRR milestone you hit. Yeah, I just recently crossed 20k. Congratulations, man! Thank you. How's yeah. that feel? It feels kind of surreal, honestly, because it's one of those milestone markers that you always kind of envision in your mind when you're thinking about building a SaaS. I mean, the first one's 10k. Then the second one kind of is naturally 20K, where that feels, to me, it's like 10K is you can, you can pay yourself a pretty good salary. And as long as you keep, keep things pretty tight on other expenses, like you can be profitable. And then 20K to me is like, okay, I can pay myself probably closer to a full salary and still have like revenue to cover growth expenses. Like it's really starting to get interesting. So it's, it's pretty surreal to be honest. Yeah. And you have no employees. So your costs are very low. Like you have, I know your server costs are relatively low and you're, you have a couple contractors and stuff, but that's a nice place to be in. And tiny seed salary caps, quarter million dog. You can get, you can ratchet that up as much as you want. Yeah. But that, it it does bring up an interesting point. It's like, A, you're, you know, 20,000 for, for those keeping track at home, 20,833 is a quarter million a year, is quarter million ARR. And what's funny is aside from a million, I rarely thought about like ARR multiples. I always, some reason to me, it was always the MRR, right? The 20, the 25, the 30, the 35. Is that your mental model as well? Like are you focused on MRR? Yeah, pretty much. Although I do, 
I'm kind of obsessive about checking my profit well graphs and <laughs> and seeing like uh, where are we at currently, what's the kind of projected based on the way churns operating, conversion rates and everything. And that's constantly surfacing ARR in front of me. So I guess I'm probably a little more aware of it just because my metrics dashboard has it on it. But yeah, I'm always thinking MRR. Well, and you know, a lot of sales multiples are based on ARR. So it, it, you know, like if you were to exit, I know you're not, not planning to do that, but so it's it is good to keep that in mind. And I mean, it's a trip because you've made it this far with no employees. I mean, I referenced this already, and you've done something. In fact, that if a founder came to me and said, "I want to be a sole developer, and I want to hire out my marketing strategy to a consultant contractor, and I want to outsource support as well," I would say, so. Not sure you should do that. Like these are kind of core competencies of a SaaS app, right? And but you've pulled them off. You both have been successful. I mean, how'd you do it? Yeah, no. I mean, I was just kind of I was just tweeting about this earlier because I, admittedly, my N is one here. Like I I don't know how like repeatable this is or how generalized this advice is that like to say like this works all the time. But I mean, on the marketing front, it was sort of serendipity finding someone like a Corey Haynes. He's I mean, kind of a unique type of person where he has a lot of experience on this front. He's ambitious. He's building his own stuff, but was in a phase of like looking for consulting work to bridge the gap. And so he kind of has, he's able to operate at kind of that owner level <laughs> thinking and, and <laughs> operating that I think is probably pretty rare to find that in like a part-time contract person. And so that I've been able to benefit from that. And, you know, I don't know where you find those types of people. I've been asked before, like, how do you find, I want to find a Corey. And it's like, I don't, I don't know how to tell you where exactly other than hanging out in MicroConf Connect and in the circles and spotting someone who's kind of working on their stuff and looking for uh, something to bridge, I guess. You know, people call it a unicorn and not in terms of the billion dollar outcome in terms of someone who is so unique, you know, a developer who can also market or, you know, product person who's really good at UX and also back end development like yourself who can go all the way from front end to back. Like that's, a, you know, a unicorn. You know, there are only a handful of Corey Haynes's that I know of people at that caliber who can do marketing strategy, which is that owner level thinking you're saying of like, because my understanding is he came in and you're like, cool what should we do? And he was like, well, I have all these ideas of things we could do. And they're like, great, can you go do them? Which is marketing tactics or marketing implementation. Those are two different levels and they're usually two different roles, right? At a, at a company and to find one person like Asia Arangio is another one who can do that. Back in the day, like that was a role that I did. I wasn't as good, nearly as good as the two people I just mentioned, but it was something that I felt like I had to do because I couldn't find anyone to do it and didn't have the money to hire two or three people, you know, to do it. And that's often why people raise funding, right? Is to, to be able to hire these roles. Yeah, that's where I think I, I like to think that I've been trying to build up my skills in this area. And I'm definitely I have some generalist, you know, founder skills in the area of marketing, but still not as specialized as the type of stuff that Corey has been steeped in for so long. So like we talked about the product hunt launch and I was like, yeah, we should do that. You know, it, it may or may not work. We'll see. And then he proceeded to lay out a doc and architect a strategy that has multiple, you know, pages long of like, we'll, we'll time emails at this point, we'll reach out to hand reach out to some people at this point and send an email to the list like this, and we'll make sure to focus on this part. And it was just very meticulous and, and well planned. And I think we saw, I mean, part of it is, is luck and part of it is execution, I think, on the results that we saw from Product Hunt. And if I were just, you know, my many hats wearing founder person doing the Product Hunt launch, I probably wouldn't have put nearly the amount of time into it just because spread so thin already and maybe you wouldn't have seen the same results. So so it's it's been good to have someone like that on the team. 
I think so. And I think, I mean, you know, you, you hear me say it ad nauseum, you know, hard work, luck, and skill. And I think you finding Corey was, there was some luck involved in that. But also, you know, you've put in the hard work of having a podcast and building a personal brand to the point where it's probably pretty appealing for Corey to work with you and work on SavvyCal because he knows that you're not a schlub, the product's good, the odds of it succeeding are good if he brings his chops. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Anything upcoming that uh, is super interesting or happening right now you want to mention? Yeah. So, I mean, we just, things are feeling like they're starting to kick in. I mean, to summarize, like the last year, it's been a lot of investing in different different things, you know, podcast sponsorships, pay-per-click ads, affiliate program, SEO. We're, we're kind of, we're trying all the, the tactics and trying to invest in them appropriately. And it feels like things are starting to, starting to really kick in. We just had our best, best growth month in the month of October since February, since right after the product hunt launch. So that's been exciting. I think, you know, coming up, it's, I, I'm always flirting with when is the right time to expand my direct team, the product and engineering side of things, since I'm still, still basically doing all of that work. And very close to, I'm actually having a couple of conversations that I'm pretty excited about with some potential first engineering hires. And so that's, that's pretty exciting. It's a big, it feels like a big step and one that I've been kind of tiptoeing towards because I know it's just such a, it changes things significantly, but hopefully for the better to, to bring someone in on that side. Right. Especially if you're bringing the right person, right? Yeah. Someone who really, really elevates it. And I feel like the, a good piece of this is like, you've already been through this with Drip, right? Is like, it was just you for a while. And I know that I did a lot of the initial interviewing and stuff, but then we co-interviewed and kind of met like, I don't know, should we hire this person? Yes. So like, you know what this feels like. Yeah, it's been demystified a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and you know, while we were still bootstrapped before the acquisition, we went from one to what was it? Were we three engineers? Mm-hmm. I think we were three, and then got acquired. And then by the time you and I left, I think weren't we sixteen engineers, eighteen engineers? So I mean, you've seen it grow. You know, I had joined some companies early, like before all of this, right when I was still a, a you know working a day job. And I had joined maybe a four-person engineering team, I think it was the smallest I was ever on, aside from consulting firms where oftentimes it was just two of us. But we'd gone from four to 24 and I knew that I didn't like, you know, the larger teams, but I had never been a sole engineer and grown it like that, right? Like we did with Drip. So you kind of you kind of know some of the mistakes that we probably made and you'll do it differently this time, right? Yeah, I think the last, you know, last time with Drip, we were sort of like, we were trying to be very scrappy. We were kind of funded by Hittail and like, like how can we get, get some help without it like hurting the bank account balance too badly. So thankfully with, with like the help of Tiny Seed funding right now, like we have the, the resources to, to kind of go after a more senior level hire, which is going to be, it's pretty exciting. I mean, once we got post acquisition phase and we were kind of building the team with senior engineers, that was it was very nice to to bring in someone who could really slot in quickly. And I'm all for like hiring juniors and training them. I think there's a lot of value in, in doing that. But I feel like at the stage I'm at right now, the company will really benefit from having a senior level person right now. And then we can, we can work on training juniors uh, when we're a little bit more mature. Yep. And why is your first hire an engineer versus any other role you could hire in a SaaS company? Part of it is I am, I see myself holding back on certain opportunities to move the business forward as kind of the the founder and and business person because I'm so focused on product and I have a very long roadmap. There's lots to build. <laughs> we can kind of 
I can kind of peek into the future when I do some exercises of trying to just set a vision for what where we can take things. And I just know there's there's a ton to build. And if I'm focusing all my effort on that, then I'm probably missing out on other opportunities to kind of oversee the overall vision of the company. And so I think getting some help on that front so that I can free up some mental headspace is going to be really important. It's interesting we're on this topic because our first listener question of the day is pretty much about this. How should a bootstrapper approach software development tasks differently compared to executing a project at a company? Great segue. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really is. So I apologize to the question asker Pramod. He sent this back in April. So it's been a few months. I'm sorry, sir. I haven't done as many listener question episodes and also voicemails and uh, video questions go to the top of the stack. If you have a question you want answered on the show, you can email it directly to questions at startupsfortherestofus.com or head to the to the website and you can click a button. There's ask a question at the top and we use video ask and you can just click and submit, you know, an audio snippet from your phone or your laptop or a video as well. So Pramod asks, it seems to me that the early stages of developing a product as a bootstrapper need a different approach compared to executing a project at a large company. Practices like writing detailed design docs, unit testing, and code quality don't help as much. I'm cringing a little bit when I say code quality and unit testing not matter as much, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get through this. Detailed design docs, I agree with. The ambiguity is a lot more and so are the constraints on how you can execute. Have you noticed such differences in how a bootstrapper approaches day-to-day software development compared to executing a project at a larger company? What do you think, sir? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've thought many thoughts around this. It is a tricky balance to strike. So I, I don't know what stage our, our asker is at on his particular product. If you're, I think things shift a little bit if you're building an MVP versus building a product that you're pretty set on continuing to build out. But I can kind of speak to both phases. Like the MVP phase is the is the hardest one to to strike this balance, I think, because it's like on the one hand, you risk over-engineering things. You spend too much time on bulletproof code. And then, you know, if you're using it truly as an MVP and you're testing it in the market and you just determine like it's not actually viable, well, now you've wasted all this time building like a really good version of something that's never going to see the light of day. The flip side is that you end up like building something that's really, really brittle, really buggy, and maybe you validate it and you get start to get some traction and then suddenly you have to grind to a halt because it's time to like rewrite and and build the real product from the ground up and then you miss out on all the momentum that comes from from getting it into market. So, I've seen startups do both. I always definitely like my instinct is to lean on building something that you can like a code base that if it if the MVP proves to be viable that you can continue on that code base and not have to stop and rewrite. So for me, I, I've kind of gone through different phases in my, you know, feeling very adamant about lots of tests. Like when I was a newer developer, like I was sort of steeped in the Ruby on Rails culture of like test, 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 test everything. And it's definitely really important. I think there is a there is sometimes a tendency to over-test. Sometimes you you just write tests around things that don't really need to be tested, like little granular unit tests that don't necessarily provide much value and even make it harder to, to build out and mutate your code base over time. So you do some of those things for, for important little bits of logic that have to be right. But in general, like I would focus more on kind of integration tests, like test the entire system, focusing on like your, your really core functionality. And what tests help you do, yes, it helps ensure correctness, but they also help you architect better code. And that's that's kind of the, the hidden secret about, about writing tests is your, the code quality comes out better by nature of running that process. 
And so that's that's what I think on testing. Like, wouldn't want to skip the tests. I've definitely probably written fewer tests for SavvyCal than I did for past products in the name of moving fast. But I'm definitely testing that core functionality heavily to make sure it's correct. And yeah, I have other thoughts too. Like I say err on the side of of writing like monolithic code bases. So larger teams, you see them, you know, building microservices and separating their front end from their back end and write building API layers in between. That's stuff that teams do in order to kind of have independent teams have, take responsibility of different parts. And that's only going to slow you down and overcomplicate things when you're building your product. So I'm a big fan of the, the kind of monolith code base where everything kind of deploys together, lives together, and you can, you can lean on tooling like Ruby on Rails has fantastic tooling for, for building server-side views that spit out HTML, and then you can layer on React if you need that. But I've kind of stuck with this sort of hybrid model of if a page can just be server-side rendered HTML, then just, just do it that way. And if it needs something more complex, then you can pull in something like a React for that page. Yes. That is such my it's such my tact as well. It, it it's a little old school, but it is it is just simple. And I think even to like I think Drip, which was quite a complicated app, like most apps people build are are not as they're not putting as much data through. They don't have the billions of rows. They don't have the tens or hundreds of millions of of queue jobs that are being processed every day. I mean, it was intense, and we I think we were doing close to ten million ARR, and it was purely still a monolith. I don't think, you know, eventually they had to break out for performance and, and because once you get 16, 18 engineers, having a monolith is, is a prop, right? But to your point, like you can make it to, to life-changing levels, especially, and if your app is even simpler, I bet you can make it further. That's kind of what I'm saying. But keep going. You were on a roll there. Yeah, yeah, no. I think it goes without saying like, go light on process. I was thinking back to our, when we were building the Drip MVP, we had this spreadsheet, right? And we, we just like made a list of features and we put, we put our estimates on them, which I think helped us to wrap our minds around like what's the how much time is this actually going to take, and do we need to cut scope if we want to come in at the the time that we were hoping to to meet? There's like a what's that function called in Google Sheets? It's like work days or work hours or something. Work days, I think. Yeah. So it, it was kind of a scrappy solution, but it was actually pretty interesting to track that and see like are we are we falling behind on uh, what we were aiming to achieve or do we need to cut some things or can we afford to add in some things? But the, I think the, the most important thing there is that it was very, very lightweight. Like we didn't, we didn't implement Jira from day one and try to like <laughs> over-process this thing. So this is a, the approach I've taken. I've gradually layered on more, more process. One thing I have done though is I set up continuous integration early from like from the get-go so that every time I push code to GitHub, it's running through CI, running the test suite, even when the test suite is tiny. And so you have those parts there in place that kind of reinforce your best practices. I've been doing like GitHub workflow from day one, even though I'm just one developer, I'm still pushing code on branches, cutting pull requests. I will kind of self-review code and just like give it a sanity check before merging it. And that's a good muscle to build up too, as opposed to just pushing everything on master all the time and sort of just builds bad habits. And so I think there's a lot of benefit to kind of still still pretending like you're, you know, you have a small team with you so that you're kind of ready when when you bring on your first hire. Right. But also not writing a three-page Word doc to describe a feature. And in fact, if I was writing the code, I wouldn't write anything about the feature unless I needed to think it out. But if I knew, if I had it in my head, I would build it. 
If you need docs, you can write docs later. Nobody will go back and look at the design docs. They're going to look at the code. You know what I mean? The only thing that I would document is if you make a, if you make a decision and you know this is either counterintuitive or it's something I really want to remember why I decided to do this, then document that somewhere, right? I think, is it just, is it a just you do it in GitHub? Yeah, that's one, way, that's one place you can do it. It's basically like a lightweight document that lives at a URL. That's a good way to do it. I feel like that, that is honestly my guiding principle on when I put code comments in. Like code should be pretty self-explanatory, but when there's an odd decision that was made or something that's kind of unique or special about that decision, that's the place to drop a, drop a comment in my opinion. And so, yeah, if you're working solo, it's one thing. If you had you know, 20 developers, then you have all this process that Pramod is asking about. If you, had, let's say you had one or two developers, there, there's an in-between, right, where you have to have some process. You know, at that point, Derek, you let's say you're running product in essence and also coding, then you have two developers. That would be a little, you'd be developer heavy, but let's just, sake of argument, that's what you have. You would have to put something into, I mean, it could be a Trello board, it could be a Notion board, it could be GitHub issues, <laughs> to say, like, build this, add this, setting on this page, this is what it should do. It, you know, if it hits this controller, or does this thing in the database, it can use an existing fielder. It, I'm mixing product and technical design here, but that's a luxury you have is you can do both. You don't need two people, right? Yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of knowing like you achieve a certain level of like understanding and context where like by onboarding the new engineer, like you probably should be spending time with, with them probably in tuple or something like that, pair programming and getting, getting them up to speed on the code base. And then at a certain point, it's like, all right, how much information do I actually have to spell out about this, this next feature? Certain things are going to be you know, obvious, and then there are certain non-obvious things. And that's what I spend my, would always spend my time focusing on, like pointing out the, the parts that are non-obvious and, and foregoing like being complete and comprehensive at that stage, because it's going to slow you down quite a bit and probably not provide much value when it's just a couple of you. Yep, as little process as possible because it allows you to move faster. And this is your biggest advantage at this stage is that you can move so fast compared to larger companies because they do have and need so much more process. Yeah, indeed. So thanks for the question, Pramod. I hope that helps. Next question is from Victor, who is just from a month ago. How did that happen? Anyways, I, well, I'm glad we're able to get to this so soon, Victor. So he says, hi, Rob, I'm a longtime listener, huge fan. After listening to your podcast for more than two years, I created my startup six months ago, and now I'm considering a Zoom-in pivot. But there is another startup offering the same service, and they have been recently acquired. The market is far from overcrowded, but I wonder, would you pivot and enter the market if there is a startup offering the same service with potential access to a huge amount of money? For those following along, a zoom-in pivot is where you you build a product and then you either realize that there's a specific vertical that you want to zoom in on, or I believe you can zoom in on a specific feature. Like we're going to get rid of like half the app and this this one piece is what everyone loves and we're just going to ditch the rest. So I think that, that's my interpretation of a zoom in pivot. But what are your thoughts on this, Derek? So I would say like just because there's a well-funded competitor in the space doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad idea to go in there. I mean, that's what I'm doing myself. I'm entering, this, I'm in the scheduling space. There's 800-pound gorillas galore in that space and I've managed to to kind of carve out a little slice that I'm, that I'm working on building. So it's definitely doable. I think I would be thinking about do you have any particular unfair advantages in that space? Like, I think it's much harder to enter a space like that if if you don't, you know, have deep context about the market, know the pain points, maybe have connections or a network in that space that you can use to, to initially get your product launched and in the market. 
are, you know, are you insanely skilled in an area where the big competitor is lacking? You know, if, if customers value UX in that space and the large well-funded incumbent just doesn't have that in their DNA, that's your opportunity to seize, you know? And I think a lot of people say, <laughs> I've heard people say like, well, they can just hire people and get better at UX, but that's a lot easier said than done. Like companies that don't have that in their, something like that in their DNA, as an example, do have a very hard time like getting really good at that. Is there something like that that you can leverage to your advantage to make make you stand apart? I think the, the important thing is like figuring out what your key differentiator is going to be and then honing in on that really strong, which if you're thinking about zooming in, that's kind of sounds like you might have a, a hypothesis about something that you have a unique take on or or will really speak to a, a burning pain point that maybe a subset of the market has. I think that's the other piece. It's like, I'm competing with well-funded competitors. And by nature, a lot of these competitors have positioned themselves very broadly. So Calendly is easily scheduling ahead. That's their um, their H1. And so it's it's not speaking to any specific pain around scheduling. It's just like we make it easy because they're, they're speaking to a really, really broad market segment. And so that gives me an opportunity to speak a little bit more narrowly to something more specific that people are experiencing. I think that's really good advice. I, I think the only thing I have to add is not only are they a well-funded competitor, but they've already been acquired. So once a company's acquired, the founders are usually not then going to stick around 10 years to, to drive it. Like they have a, there's a clock ticking for them to leave. If they had just raised a huge funding round, then the founders are, then it's like they're trying to get to exit or they get to the next round. And I'm not saying every founder who sells checks out or anything like that, but some do. And also the odds of them founders being around in two, three, four years are small, right? Because they, they, they got their payday. So that's even more reason that I think that you could probably make up some, some ground on this startup. I wouldn't be concerned by this very much at all. All right. Our next question from Lorenzo is about whether to use a progressive web app that we're going to abbreviate as PWA or a native app for a SaaS startup. And he says, Hey Rob, this is Lorenzo from Italy. I'm working on a concept for a new SaaS startup. And since I'm thinking of bootstrapping, my next concern is how to keep costs under control, manage complexity at a reasonable level and create a platform that is future-proof. Among my doubts, there's one related to the technology to be chosen upfront to build such service. I would expect it would be used 70% from mobile and 30% from desktop. Would you suggest I develop the platform as a progressive web app, PWA, or two native separate apps, one for iOS and another for Android? I'm inclined to do a PWA, but I have doubts given that only Google seems heavily committed towards this format. It seems to me Apple still prefers native apps on which they can have a cut of the monetization within the app store. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's extremely difficult to pull off, you know, implementing multiple platform versions of your same product. We've seen many examples of this, right, from from sort of the history of startups, Facebook being a big one, you know, historically they they had native apps only and they they pivoted over to being a kind of web app. I think they've gone through different iterations. They have React Native now, which could be an option of like taking web code and compiling it down into a form of native code. So that's that's certainly one one way to achieve this, you know, on desktop apps like Slack, example, is still an Electron app, <laughs> still a web app running in a in a shell. And we we also seen another example from the community, Twist. I think is a is like a Slack alternative, and I think they were for the longest time committed to 
to kind of building native versions of their apps, trying to optimize for a very fast and snappy and native feeling experience. And I think, you know, they recently pivoted away from that as well, because the burden of doing that is just extremely high. Every single feature you add into the one UI, you now have to go and write code to implement it over there. And it's, you end up with kind of things naturally drifting apart, synchronizing engineering schedules, not to mention the cost of doing that is, is pretty immense. So I would strongly recommend unifying it under one code base and, and just kind of opting for, you know, either using like a, a web wrapper technology like Electron or something like a React native that might let you kind of reuse the same parts and compile it down into native so usually I have a bunch of things to add on to these answers, but really I was you're basically going to say, yeah, don't do it. Like the examples of these big companies try it and they like, it's like uh, Napoleon invading Russia. They like run in and it's like, it's cold, it's cold. And they run out. It's like over and over it's happening, right? Was that that 1800s joke was not, not a good one, was it? <laughs> it's just a reference. It's actually a reference to an Eddie Izzard uh, comedy sketch. So go check that out if you haven't seen it. Is white labeling an option for getting started? That's our next question from Devin Tracy. He says, I'm not technical and I've never owned a SaaS. So when I started listening to your show, everything was just entertainment for me. That's funny. Entertainment, this show. But now, <laughs> but now I have white labeled a SaaS that I'm starting to try and market and sell as my own. And suddenly everything you say has relevance beyond the entertainment. That's cool. And that's once you start doing things, that's usually, you know, usually what happens. I'm curious about your thoughts on the white labeling approach I'm taking. I do hope to build my own SaaS one day, perhaps learn coding, more likely be a non-technical founder. And I'm hoping this can be a good route to help me get my feet wet, maybe even build some revenue. I love all you do and appreciate the podcast. Much gratitude, Devin. What do you think on this? Yeah, so I was I was actually trying to understand kind of how the how the model's working with when he's saying white labeling. It sounds like he's basically there's a product that he has licensed to become like a, a reseller of it sort of thing. Pretty much. And so you can imagine, let's say that there was an email service provider, you know, and he whether he's paying them X amount per month as a flat fee or per year, or he's paying 30% of his revenue that he generates to them. But then he has his own website, own domain, own logo. So no one, you know, any customer that he markets to, usually this is like you white label this to go into a vertical, right? There's an ESP selling to everyone. And then you want to build this ESP for realtors and you just pre-populate it with content for realtors and you market it to realtors and you call it realtyesp.com or whatever. That's a terrible name. Don't use that. But you know, that that's the idea, right? So he didn't say that, but let's, let's assume that's kind of the example. Yeah. So in that case, I mean, it seems like this could be a good a good stair step. I think, like especially if you're looking to level up your chops on like the non technical side of things, on marketing and selling. So if you're if you're looking to experiment with doing, figure out how to do SEO, do a content strategy, do pay per click or partnerships, sponsorships, all those things, you could. I feel like you could you could practice those skills and deploy them with this kind of off the shelf product that you're bringing into a into a new market. I think if you're looking to like an, another big part of Operating your own SaaS is developing the skills on how to interview customers, iterate on product based on their feedback, set your roadmap, managing development cycles, all those things. So it just it depends on what you're, I think, trying to what skills you're trying to develop. But yeah, I see I see no issue with like using this. It sounds like his his goals are to bring in some revenue and to level some skills in a particular area that will apply to someday running his own SaaS and it. To me, it seems like this this could fit that bill nicely. I feel similarly to this because the the whole point of the stair step approach is that 
it's really hard to learn everything all at once, right? It's like there's product, there's engineering, there is all the things around marketing. When marketing itself has 20 different things you have to learn to be any good at it, right? And then there's sales and then there's support and then there's, there's operations on and on and on. And learning all those things at once is really tough. And that's why like a step one business eliminates a bunch of that. Usually it's in a marketplace of something, right? So then you don't have to learn all the marketing. Maybe you're just doing the coding and then, you know, some promotion or whatever, some ranking, but then it's support. This approach of white labeling is similar. As you said, he's kind of trying to limit the number of things he has to know all at once. And then he can learn the other things, the innovation or the product management and, and taking in customer requests and actually going and building stuff like you could learn that later. So uh, there are obviously risks here, right? There's a, you have platform risks like crazy because you are beholden to someone who, I don't know, you know, can they revoke your license? Could they just shut their whole thing down and stop supporting it? So there's risk there. So like for me, I wouldn't, you know, be like, I'm going to build this five, $10 million business and exit it. Like I would be concerned about trying to do that, but th- I could see building a cool lifestyle business on this, right? That 10, 20, 30 grand a month with just you, you don't need developers because you know, that you're paying this other company essentially to develop it or to maintain it or whatever. So you just have to handle what? support and marketing, really? I'm intrigued by that, especially as a non-developer founder. I'm curious. I mean, Devin, I hope you update us because I haven't heard anyone do this before. But like my initial take is similar to Derek's of like, I don't see why not. If I wasn't a developer and wanted to do a SaaS app, I think it's an interesting approach. Aside from the platform risk, like it's it's like you you kind of just have to go into a vertical, right? Because there's no innovation happening here. Like, you know, you're not able to make the decisions of what gets built. And so if you go into a space where it's a constant feature race, you're going to get out featured. <laughs> if you were in the scheduling link field or if you were an ESP that's not niched down to a vertical, a small vertical space, I think you're going to get crushed because you're just not going to have anything unique to offer the market. So that's probably a word of caution is I would look to head into spaces where it's not that feature race and the constant need for uh, innovation. Yeah, that's that's good advice, I think. And like also like a, a big part of like making progress towards having your own software product is making sure that you are tackling a worthwhile problem. And I feel like this could be an interesting way to discover, like I don't know if this is an, a field you would want to continue staying in like but you could potentially build up something here as you build this business that would help you towards your next endeavor you know be able to, like you're going to have customers in this space contacts partners whatever and you may discover like this product is not cutting it anymore this one this white labeled one but maybe you have an angle on solving problems for this particular group of people that then you can start head down your path of partnering with a technical founder or whatever but i think it's a good could be a good way to to learn learn some deep insights that'll inform what your next product could look like. Indeed. So thanks for the question, Devin. I hope that was helpful. And our last question for today is from Nicholas. He says, broker or no broker when selling a single founder business? Nicholas says, I was wondering your thoughts on when selling a bootstrapped single founder business with no employees, whether to use a reputable broker to facilitate the entire process, someone like Quiet Light Brokerage, or to use a marketplace like MicroAcquire or Flippa. When is using a broker worth their cut of the deal? And there, obviously there are other brokers, it's quite uh, FE International, I'm trying to think of who else, like Empire Flippers and such, and I, I believe the commissions on those are 10 to 15% usually they range. So you and I have both had experiences selling businesses through, uh, you know, through brokers. What, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it for me it has depended on the size. So I... I've had a few projects that I have sold on my own very, 
very casually <laughs> lightweight. So I built a product called Static Kit, and it had just a, a little bit of MRR, but wasn't really in growth mode at all. And I wanted to rehome that app and find a place for for those customers who were using it to find safe ground somewhere else. And so I managed to just I reached out to a competitor and said, "Hey, I'm looking to kind of exit the industry," and we just kind of lightweight negotiated a price and and sold that. Also sold like the the IP for the level app domain when I shut that that project down. Didn't use a broker for those. But I have had so I had a, a SaaS app called CodeTree that was around four thousand MRR, sort of sort of flat on growth. And I was at that time it was a side project and I was building Drip and I couldn't imagine trying to you know, shop that around, find find potential buyers, vet them, go through the negotiations. It just would have been an immense distraction. And so at that phase, it, it made perfect sense to do it. And I think even with our drip experience, we obviously had professional help um, on that front. And that deal took a year to close. We needed to focus on continuing to grow and, and run the business. I mean, our the guy who was helping us did so much legwork. I mean, it's a full-time job for a deal of that of that scale. So I definitely wouldn't have tried to try to do that on my own. Yeah, and that's the thing is, I, I do think it depends on how comfortable you feel with your own skill set. I mean, like some people are good at negotiating and are naturals, or they're comfortable with it, and other people really don't want to. In which case, a broker is going to help you and advise you, right? And some people feel like they can put their business up on a micro acquire or a flippa. I mean, these days, I think if certainly if you have a SaaS app or software product, I would be on micro acquire if I was going to pick a marketplace. They're kind of the leading, the leading one. I had the founder on here a few months ago. And so it depends a bit on your your skill set and experience. I mean, the tricky part is, you know, you say, well, I'm going to give a broker 10%. That's a lot of money. But it's like, you can also make a single mistake that costs you 20%. <laughs> it's not hard to do that. So that's that, that's that balance. I would say if you're running a SaaS app that's doing north of a million dollars, I can't imagine trying to sell that or any, really any business, you know, it would be, it'd be a challenge. Now we, you and I have a mutual friend, we're in a Slack group with kind of a small founder group and he sold his business on micro acquire for a good chunk of money and he did it all himself, but he has a ton of experience doing that kind of related stuff, not in software, but like negotiating, cutting deals, figuring things out, right? So it, deals are a thing he's done a lot of. A lot of us, especially software developers, have not. We'll do a handful of deals in our whole life, you know? If you're, I would say, again, if you're north of a million dollars of SaaS, not only would I want a, a broker, but I mean, I would talk to, so there's people who specialize in this, like discretion capital is a sell side M&A advisory, right? And they help SaaS companies who are north of a million dollars sell their companies run a whole process. So that's one quiet light for sure, you know, has, has just been around and, and helped, helped a lot of folks doing that. So I think you have to think about like what value does the broker bring? What gaps do they fill? And especially the higher it gets. Well, that's the other interesting thing is the higher the purchase price, the commissions usually come down. Broker isn't going to come and consult on a, on a $20 million sale and take 10%. They don't take $2 million in commission, right? So it, the number actually comes down the bigger your sale gets. So I, th- I think to your point of the size is important to consider, your experience and then I don't know on the marketplace versus the broker thing. I guess, I guess that it's similar. It's like if you if you're in these marketplaces, it's a lot more you're on your own, right? They they don't have the advisors, and so are you willing to take the risk, you know, and make the mistake potentially of of not maybe not having an optimal exit because you don't know what standard or what you should ask for, you know, when you're when you're doing it for the first time. Yeah, I recall when I was when I was selling CodeTree. First of all, the the broker had people that he knew that were sort of interested already. So he was able to bring potential buyers like throughout the listing, but also did some direct outreach to the, 
And I think the people who ultimately bought it were on that kind of short list of people that he knew were already looking. So there was a little bit of that kind of shortcutting the process already in. And then he was able, he knew how to manage the leverage properly. I think he did a very, very good job. Actually, the, the buyers wrote up a, a very honest blog post about the whole process and, and talked about how like they sort of reached a point where they were sort of stuck. Like he was, he was just very good at, at doing the negotiation. Not Definitely not skills I would have had. And I think he managed to, you know, as soon as we got a serious offer in the door, he was making sure to continue to look for backup offers, run that, that rigorous process to make sure that we had the right amount of leverage on our side. And I don't know how much of that comes baked into some of these marketplaces or if it's just sort of like you receive offers and it's you can negotiate with them back and forth but you're sort of on you to potentially look for a backup and 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 make sure you can use that as leverage you know so it's a lot and that's the thing if you have a if this is your only business and you have a bunch of time to do it and it's you know and and you don't want to give it the commission then to your earlier point well then do it on your own I think if you're on to another thing, like you were, you building trip, it's like, you cannot manage. It was stressful enough as it was, and it was enough time. Cause I did the same thing, right? I sold Hittail maybe six months before you sold Code Tree. And I was going through the same thing. Obviously, I went through Broker because we were busy building this, you know, incredible business. And I kind of wanted to get rid of this, not get rid of it, but I, I wanted to be off my books. And there was no way I would have managed, you know, that process. So that's the thing. And, but I, here's what I think, dude. I am so happy that our space, like kind of this bootstrap, mostly bootstrap space has evolved to what it is, where it is easier to buy and to sell apps. Because like the first app I ever bought was 2006, 15 years ago. And it was a show. Like I didn't know what I was doing. There was no material on it. There were no brokers. No one would touch this stuff. You know, there were domainers at that point, right? And I got taken advantage of. It eventually worked out. It was .NET Invoice, right? It was my first first one that really caught and got two, three, four, five grand a month, depending on the month. It was not SaaS, so it was really, really spiky. And the multiples were crazy low. Like I, I used to buy stuff between 12 and 18 months of net profit. I used to buy off Flippa. Like a, a lot of the reason I was able to quit the day job was because it was just cheap, you know? And on the buyer side, that's great. But these days, like the stuff we build to build Code Tree to 4K a month, that's a great little bootstrap business, lifestyle business. Can't You weren't going to live off it, right? But like, it was a nice side income. And then to sell it for $128,000, that number is public. I'm not dis- disclosing anything. Like, that's a, that was a great win for you. And that kind of multiple, you know, and even these days, I think it's like four to six. You know, if you're under a million, usually it's like SDE, net profit is about four to six-ish. And then if you're over a million, it's like four to six of your revenue, not of your profit, right? That These are ballpark numbers, can't quote me, because yes, of course, some sell for nine or 10. And if you're declining, you sell for less. But that's great for us, because we're makers and builders. And it means even if our project doesn't turn into everything we want, there's still value there. And I think they're still going up too, by the way. I mean, there are only so, there are a lot of buyers and there's a lot of money floating around. There are only so many of us. There are only so many people making these things, you know, and doing a good job and even and getting to 5K even, the funnel narrows, right? And so there is a, a dearth of those types of businesses, which means the supply and demand, it, it is a seller's market in a sense. And that is why these prices keep going up, which I think is it's good. I think it's good for the ecosystem. And I'm glad it's made a little more official. <laughs> you know, it's like brokers made it a little more official. And you can, yes, they take a cut and yeah, they have a big buyer list. And so are they on the buyer's side or the seller's side? Like, yeah, I hear all these arguments. I hear you, but we are better off today than we were 10 years ago and certainly more than 15 years ago. Well said. All right, sir. Folks want to keep up with you. You are Derek Reimer on Twitter. And of course, SavvyCal.com. If they want to see one of the nicest SaaS homepages on the internet, how do you do it? 
Every time, every time you do it, I'm like, this guy is unreal. We've known uh, each other a long time and you never cease to amaze me with this whole design stuff, dude. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening again this week. Thanks for coming back every week. I'm trying to be really mindful of putting out content that I think is varied and that hopefully keeps you, you know, entertained and interested and wanting to hear the next episode. So until I'm back in your ears again next Tuesday morning, I hope you have a great week pushing your business forward.